Hello and welcome back to the Warby Movies. This is episode 49, our episode on Little Women. This is the penultimate episode of our mini-series covering movies released between 2010 and 2019, where we've picked 25 of our favourites. And as is the way in this back half of this mini-series, I am choosing movies that Matt has never seen before. Matthew, <laughs> you watched Little Women for the first time. Before we get your opinions on the movie, what is your relationship to Little Women, the book? Read it a long time ago. So you won't be alone in Ben's book corner. But yeah, I mean, it's not something that like I read and reread or that like I could quote to you. But yeah, I, I've, I have read Little Women. It's I, I didn't put the book in the freezer like Joey, but you know. Um. <laughs> it, it, it's so much more of an American classic. I feel like it is yeah. a cultural touchstone than it is in the UK. As in is in the US. Yeah, what is it they say about it that it like it's the first instance of the of the all American girl or whatever, but <laughs> even though it's not <laughs> Well like I don't know, like I feel like it's you know, it, it's kind of like that it encouraged women to like take up hobbies and, and their own identities and stuff like that, and I feel like that's the opposite of what they want for the all American girl, but <laughs> that's for another time. No, yeah. So I, to be honest, the only reason I haven't seen it until now is because I knew it was going on the list. Like, it was fully something that I was enthusiastically going to go and see in a cinema when that was possible all those eons ago. came out, like, right around Christmas, New Year sort of time, and I think I was considering seeing it on, like, New Year's Day or something, and then I got really when I That was when I last saw it, because I saw it okay. once before the end of the year, and I saw it literally on New Year's Day where we were, like, bumming around and, like... Let's go rewatch Little Women. Yeah. So we were going to go see it, and then I got like really, really sick, and just it, we didn't. And then I just never really got to it, and I knew we were going to do it. And yeah, the quick thing is, I'm not mad it's on the list. So there you go. It saves any kind of like raging debate we're going to have. Yeah. And the final movie we're going to watch, exact same situation, like enthusiastic, own it. Just never watched it because I knew it's going on the list, and I was like, ah, I'll just watch it for the first time when we do it. Were you completely bowled over by this movie as I was? Or was it just like, this is a nice um, adaptation yeah, of Little Women? Yeah, I would say more that. Like, I'm not completely bowled over. I think um, I'm bowled over by the talent of the people who made it and are in it. Like, Greta Gerwig is... <laughs> like, where has this come from, <laughs> almost? <laughs> like, I, I haven't seen Lady Bird, so for me it really is where has this come from. But, like, this feels like such a different animal to... Like, I... I think I have a sense for the kind of film that Lady Bird is. This is very ambitious to do as your second movie, like to go make a big period drama and like make potentially the least boring period drama ever made. Yeah, and just the the performances from you know the main two girls uh, and old uh, Peach Fucker himself, Timothy Chalamet, you know, all outstanding. Everyone deserving of everything they got nominated for. Um, a crime that Greta Gerwig didn't get nominated for Best Director. Yeah, I saw somebody called it possibly the best movie ever made by an American woman. And it's like, I, I don't have an immediate rebuttal, but that doesn't feel quite right. <laughs> but it's certainly very good. A lot of people prefer Lady Bird in terms of, like, it feels a bit more personal. But there is just something about Little Women. I don't know what it is. And it's happened all three times I've seen this goddamn fucking movie mm. where about 20 minutes in, something happens. I just start crying. And I cannot stop. Before anything sad even happens. I genuinely, the first time I saw it in the cinema they come down for Christmas and then mum walks into the room and is just like, we're going to give away our stuff. And I'm just, like, bawling my eyes out. I don't mm. know 
what it is about this movie. And then this viewing somehow started even earlier. <laughs> I can't. I can't remember. The exact I think it was like. I think five minutes in. Yeah, I think the intense amount of chemistry the four of them have together makes every scene where they're just talking over each other, where nothing nothing of real importance is being said, and you can barely even hear what some of them are saying, because they're just, they're just babbling over each other. It is super joyous just seeing them together and, like, knowing the ultimate fate of them all. Because, like, even before I read it, I knew Beth died. <laughs> like, that's yeah. just sort of iconic. Yeah, it just... I, I do think there is a there is a sense of sadness that underpins the kind of joy of just seeing them all being just so effortlessly good together kind of thing. Um, uh, yeah, I think I think it, it's a very happy movie that's got a, a current of melancholy under all of it. And I, I, it's, just, it's just something about it, and it's happened all three times, and it's just like, reliably, I put it on, I just start crying. Like, I was literally watching it this morning, eating a bowl of cereal, and I started sobbing into my cereal. <laughs> what kind like, of cereal? Uh, just some like Tesco and brand ah, shit. Okay, we're not angling for a sponsor here. Yeah. No, no, no. Just, just some like had some strawberries in it. It was nice. Okay, that's nice. Um, <laughs> but yeah, like I, I absolutely fucking adore this movie because I mm. had never seen or I'd never seen an adaptation of Little Women or read Little Women the book before I went into this. I read the book okay. after the fact. Obviously, I knew like Amy falls into the ice, Beth dies. Like I knew these touchstones because. When you watch enough American culture, those things do bleed <laughs> through into like your cultural awareness. I yeah. did genuinely think the line that Mo reads in the episode of The Simpsons, where he goes, they were no longer little girls, they were little women, was actually the last line of the book. <laughs> which is oh, a failing entirely. Oh, Bob Odenkirk. <laughs> <laughs> I just want him to come into every movie about an hour in and say the name of the movie. Just no matter what it is, you know. And it truly was a Jurassic World. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. And of course, you grew up playing Zelda, and the four ghosts, Amy, Bo- uh, Amy Beth, Joe, and Meg, are named after the little women. So I did not realise that. Okay. <laughs> In Ocarina of Time, yeah, the four ghost sisters are named after them. I feel... For the very first time in however many years we've been doing this now, the more cultured one of us for a second. <laughs> and I'm just going to sit in that for a second, and now yeah. you may return to being the sophisticated one. Well, I think the most <laughs> important thing we have to touch on in terms of Little Women is the fact that this is not a straight adaptation of Little Women no. uh, in the ordinary sense of it. Because obviously, I think the most... And this is the thing that really annoyed me, is last season in Oscar season, when this movie was being discussed, it was quite unfairly kind of like thrown to the bus quite a lot. Mm. Um, and obviously that's why Gerwig doesn't end up with a nomination in director. But there were a lot of people coming out and going, I found the movie structurally confusing. Yeah. I, it was something I was kind of aware of while watching it, that like, good luck, Ben, because, you know, I, I try and get my bullet point talking points for this, and I was sort of like, mm, this is a bit floaty, isn't it? But I... Th- it's enjoyable to watch. I think you're, I don't, you know, as I said, good luck trying to guide this conversation. And I could see, you know, it's the kind of thing where if I didn't enjoy watching them all just be together so much or individually, because, I mean, they're not together a huge amount, then it might bother me. Uh, because it is a little bit, like, there's no real hand-holding in terms of, like, 
outside of like the actual dialogue you don't know where they are what year it is i guess there's the seven years earlier there's the the seven years earlier and the color gradient is different so like all the stuff all the stuff in the past is like lit with brighter orange colors and all the stuff in the present day or in quotation marks present day is like blue and a little bit more muted in tone but it's predominantly ambient storytelling kind of thing I mean, obviously, it's like contextual cues. It's yeah, like, yeah. like you look at it and you go, like, okay, Joe's hair's short, therefore we're in the <laughs> we're in the past. Yeah, I th- I think you you get it. Like, there might be the odd occasion where it's like, wait, where even are they? Or you know that kind of stuff. But like for the most part, you you don't need to know. Like you you are guided through the story emotionally, and it it makes sense. And like I think setting it non-linearly, I I think I think Greta said that like she did it because she wanted to focus on them as adults kind of thing rather than like following it through from them as like you know late teen adolescent girls and then watching them age upwards kind of thing if you kind of constantly are seeing them as adults and then flashing back to happier times as it were i think i think it is effective and like certainly when it comes to beth I think it really, really works because yeah, like, I think that that's the reason why they do it is because mm. you get the the intercutting between the first time she's sick in book one and the mm. time that she's she dies in book two is like yeah. that's the ultimate payoff to yeah. structuring it like this for sure. And, and like, and like Joe got her better the first time, and like you're seeing that as you know she's not getting better the second time, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and obviously like they managed to find certain things to like contrast with each other like going from what Amy's like in the past to Amy like in in the present mm. is like one of the biggest contrasts and it's like the big thing is I feel like the first book of Little Women because obviously when it was published originally published about 12 months apart mm-hmm. is two separate volumes most people prefer the first book or it's them as children and there's a lot more joyousness and warmth to it yeah but also the other thing is Amy is almost overwhelmingly seen as like the worst sister <laughs> which is crazy because uh, i know saoirse ronan is giving the best performance in this movie like i know florence, Pugh, florence pugh's giving the best performance in this okay movie. that's kind of what i wanted to say i was like i th- i was gonna say like i know objectively saoirse ronan is giving the best performance however i think florence pugh is, is my favorite by far um we've said it every time she's ever come up she's a fucking star and like i know that like there isn't there has become a sort of anti-marvel backlash like you know going over a year without a marvel movie and a lot of people like good finally kind of thing and like black widow is probably a heinous piece of shit but like i am so fascinated to see her in that so for that reason i want that movie to come out but yeah just like to go from Midsummer to this, and like, did she do fighting for my family like almost immediately before Midsummer, or did she yeah, go that, straight that, that from was, this to Black Widow? That year. She's okay. also got like Little Drummer Girl the year before. Yeah. Just, just like a progressive like increase, increase in terms of like her portfolio. Yeah. The most amazing thing about this is like she is someone with like the deepest voice in the world, <laughs> yeah. and yet she still fully like comes across as a preteen in yeah. like the sheltered she, scenes. She's so, 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 so good. Like every, it, it's little thing. Like it, 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 Ronan is leading. Like in the movie is on her shoulders, kind of thing, and that gives Florence the 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 freedom to have these little moments. What you know, like Joe's cut her hair, and she's like, "You're one beauty," or whatever, like that. and like throwing popcorn in the air when Dad comes home, like all that sort of stuff. Yeah, she's my tiny perfect feet. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm making him a cast of my feet. Like, yeah, she's so, so good. And, like, I feel early on it's a bit like, oh, God, are we doing a thing? I got very lost in it kind of thing. So there are times where I'm like, oh, no, she didn't write this. This is an incredibly famous book. But, you know, like, when you're watching it, it's like, oh, so we, what we've got here is, like, two sisters fighting over a man. And it's like, early on, it, I don't know, just, like, by the end of it, I'm like, no, I fully support this coupling more than Incel, Laurie, and, and potentially coded Ace Joe kind of thing. Um, well, and... uh, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the, the, the quick reading <laughs> on, on Little Women, don't you worry. That is definitely something that is going to come up in this. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I think I think that's what makes this such a, a masterful adaptation, is mm. that like she, she finds these contrasting points, and obviously someone, uh, I think Emily Vanderworth of Vox wrote an article, or wrote some tweet a tweet thread about talking about how the people who are confused by the movie structure don't watch a lot of TV. It feels like a lot of that criticism is coming from film viewers where like, I feel like TV is a lot more comfortable doing this non-linearity and doing this colour coding kind of thing. Yeah, where, like, this... You're almost more hard-pressed to find a TV show that doesn't use flashbacks than does. <laughs> exactly, um... exactly. And and like the fact that she manages to make Amy into like the sympathetic character at the heart of this mm. and like her and her and Joe's views on like what it means to be a woman in this age yeah. like contrasts so beautifully in the second half yeah. and then we also get the the like the alt universe tale where they start folding in on top of itself the fact that little women is very obviously based on Louisa May Alcott's life yeah um it's it's famously said to be like semi-autobiographical but this basically takes that and makes it autobiographical where the the movie becomes about joe writing little women the book the deal that she makes at the end of the movie is the deal that louisa may alcott made to make little women yes and, and like then they, you then know like discuss. she she is writing a, a, a novel in in the original book but like it's not as explicit as we watch them print little women for the first time at the end of the movie kind of thing and yeah. you know like gathering up her diaries and her other writings and trying to form like a, a more nuanced picture of who she is and who she was about and the payoff of that at the end like the final um you know like the train station scene that is so clever and uh yeah because yeah. obviously like <laughs> it, it's famously derided by many people who like little women because obviously the first book little one comes out everyone wants joe and laurie to get together and mm-hmm. then louisa may alcott in the second book is like fuck you that's not what you get she's gonna end <laughs> up with an older german man uh yeah. laura's gonna marry amy fuck you for wanting this <laughs> this isn't what my story's about screw you and, <laughs> and so the fact that the movie manages to find a way to include this yeah. derided ending and obviously they make it they make the the love interest french and more attractive uh rather mm. than german and about 20 years older than her <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but they get to have their cake and eat it where it's like here is the story of like what what should have been the ending to little women is her single and writing a book and becoming this famous author and the true to life yeah like you you get to see like it becomes a thing of from this point on this isn't what actually happened this is what she's put into the book and like is any of this what actually happened yeah it's all just very clever Um, yeah and i i don't know it's my favorite book to film adaptation of the decade i think like I, I think I prefer Handmaiden as a movie, but I think there are things that this does mm. that are more interesting with the text that it's based on than than yeah, any other adaptation I've seen this decade. It's playing with it while not changing it too radically. Like I think for people very familiar with it, 
I don't, I mean, other than those little cutesy scenes with the publisher, like, for the most part, it is playing it kind of straight. It's just telling it non-linearly. And, like, I can see why that might bother people, but, like, you know, get over it. Just lose yourself. It's not like the plot is intensely, like, crucial here. Like, you can sum up what happens to each of them in a sentence. Yes, um, exactly. Uh, but before we get to that, before we actually discuss the plot, we have yeah. some contextual information for 2019. Uh, so 2019 was a good year for movies. Yeah, prove it. Prove it. So uh, I'm looking at the list of best movies of 2017. On that list, you've got Parasite, a movie which we're discussing next week. Like, Whoa! And then if you look at how many movies could have come out <laughs> in this timeline. like Yeah. yeah. There really isn't much. Uh, Irishman, famously three hours long, a movie Matthew will never, ever watch. Never. Never, 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 never. If we uh, had a Patreon, we would make it a Patreon special, and I would demand <laughs> money to watch. <laughs> uh, another movie Matthew will probably never watch, Once Upon a Time, in Hollywood. N- yeah, almost certainly not. I, su- I support uh, Margaret Qualey, is that her name? Yeah. No, I, I don't want to watch Quentin <laughs> change history again. My third favorite movie of 2019, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, which is just a... Oh God, what a tremendous movie that is. If we had room, I would fight to have it on this list, but 2019 was getting stacked to begin mm-hmm. with. <laughs> uh, then after that, we got The Souvenir, Marriage Story, Uncut Gems, Pain and Glory, Atlantics, The Farewell, Little Women, Midsummer, Us, Knives Out, Booksmart, A Hidden Life, Ad Astra, The Lighthouse, Hustlers, and at the bottom of the list, sadly, because enough people liked it, Joker. <laughs> But, like, almost every single one of those movies, apart that, I'm like, yeah, I fucking love everything on this list, pretty much. Like, mm. Pain and Glory is wonderful. Uncut Gems is wonderful. The Souvenir is fantastic. The Farewell, Midsummer. Mm. Um, I was going to say, were you ever considering pushing for Midsummer to get on the list? In the back of my mind, I was. Mm. I, Midsummer was probably the most visceral mm. experience I had in the cinema last year. I do genuinely think, I'm looking at my spreadsheet at the moment for awards, and... Florence Pugh is within a hair's distance of winning both lead actress and supporting actress for the year. Because she's fucking unreal in Midsummer, And obviously Midsummer was never going to get nominated. The fact that Tony Collette didn't get nominated for Hereditary, despite the fact like Ari Aster has probably put forward two of the best movies featuring female performances in Mm. horror ever. And both of them kind of got snubbed at the Oscars. It's a damn shame. Uh, Midsummer's fantastic. Like the fact that you make that movie as fucking terrifying as it is, and it's just all daylight the entire time is mm. is unreal. It's great. I watched it earlier on this year, and I'm like, yeah, no, this movie fully fucks. Yeah, we need to just yeah. We, <laughs> you want to see your homework on Florence Pugh before she's literally conquered cinema, but uh, she's basically already done it, and she's disgustingly young. Absolutely, start Midsummer, great. Uh, I don't know whether or not. Again, it's another one of those like two and a half hour movies that I'm like, this could backfire on me with Matt. And I just remember like I don't think there's any way that you could replicate the experience I had in the cinema the first time where I'm sat there in the middle of summer watching this movie in a packed audience, just kind of like just my skin itching from like just what's going on and the metaphors that the movie's dealing with and stuff like that. Yeah, she's fucking great. But Let's jump ahead six months after mm. Midsummer comes out <laughs> to the Christmas Day or like the week after Christmas Day weekend box office at the UK. How did Little Women do, Matthew? Well, Benjamin, uh, of its total eventual worldwide gross of two hundred sixteen and a half million dollars, pretty good for something like this. It made twenty 
1.8 million of it in the UK, also quite high, I would say. And it, it had pretty long legs in the UK. Like, I think it stayed in cinemas longer than this kind of thing normally would. Like, it, it opened to 4 million, so the weekend of, like, the 27th, 29th of December. I should probably say that, like... <laughs> It's not that Chris, nobody goes to the cinema at Christmas in the UK. I just feel like a Christmas Day opening in the US is a big thing, and that doesn't happen here. Like I don't think cinemas are even open on Christmas Day here. No, yeah, no, cinemas aren't open, and we definitely do. Like the thing we do in the in England that they don't do in America is a lot of Christmas Day television. Like a lot of stuff yeah. we make in the UK is designed to air on Christmas Day on television. There's a Doctor Who special. There's a, yeah. a various comedy shows will do specials on that day. Yeah. Whereas if America's going to do a new Christmas special, it's going to air a couple of weeks beforehand. Like you watch all the sitcoms and their Christmas episodes air like the second week of December, and yeah. then the show's on hiatus until end of January. Yeah, totally. So I do think it's like a slightly softer opening in the UK than it might have been, but it jumps to like almost 12 million in its second week, you know, 17, 21, 24, 26, 27, plateaus kind of around 28 until it eventually drops out in March. But like in terms of the opening weekend, it is number three at the box office in the UK on its opening weekend. Highest new movie to debut Number one was unfortunately still Star Wars Episode Nine: Rise of the Skywalker, uh, Jumanji: The Next Level, uh, and then just behind it, uh, Little Women is Frozen Two, Cats, Spies in Disguise, Playing with Fire, Knives Out, Good News, and Last Christmas. So, right, Matthew, I have to I have to ask you: You do realize that Spies in Disguise is a pun? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. the they're engine. in the the skies. Yeah. The yeah. disguise. Yep. I got it. Everyone got it. I hope. Um, what a fucking weird movie that is. Yes. Absolutely. But also not weird enough to be good. No, not not weird in the good way. Um, so, you know, that, that's pretty decent. And like, I feel it did have the buzz. Because, uh, you know, as I said, it takes... Well, as people have probably gotten the measure of... It, as we've covered these movies and we've gotten towards the end of this decade... It takes quite a lot for me to leave the house to go to the cinema for something that isn't explosions and capes kind of thing. I don't want to s- describe myself that way, but that is the unfortunate reality. Is I feel you are, you are the layman of this, where I feel like that is the <laughs> actual mental trend of most people who exist in the world nowadays. Where it's yeah. like the thing I want to go see in the cinema is like the big spectacle, yeah. whereas I'm like, I want to see all of these movies. I just don't want to have to go there to do it. You know, like I want, if these movies were available day one, you know, if we Mulaned it and it didn't cost $40 or $30 or whatever it was, I would watch so many of these movies and I am really excited to see them when they come out in home release. I just, I just don't want to leave my home to see something that isn't a Marvel movie anymore. And I can't really explain or defend it like i feel gross saying it but it's just like yeah like the marvel movies are like oh i've got to see that in the first week i must i must and then something like this i'm like i really would like to see it i just don't want to leave my home and pay money and you know similar phenomenon to like the netflix effect where like it feels like the only movies that people talk about nowadays are the big blockbusters and they really are the big Disney blockbusters. Like, Star Wars still feels like an event, even though, obviously, you watch yeah. the erosion of the box office over time. Marvel <laughs> is the ultimate example of that, where it's almost, again, it's a TV show. Everyone feels the need to go see it. Everyone feels the need to go see it soon. Yeah. Because everyone's going to go see it, and you'll have it spoiled for you. Which, yeah. yeah. And yeah. it's why 
and like you're not really bothered about spoilers for little women (laughs) yeah exactly but it's why ant-man the wasp doesn't succeed as well because it's not it doesn't feel part of that like main tapestry that they're that they're doing whereas like captain marvel and black panther did because well they debuted in civil war or they debuted in the uh, the tail end of infinity war and they feel like they're integral plot parts to like what's going to go forward yeah and like captain marvel can exist in a in a end gamey infinity worldy world and like ant-man is like well how are they gonna do this and then they they did just set it before but yeah um but yeah like i i feel like (laughs) the movies like that have come a few years before this a decent amount of them I did go and see in cinema and like you know I I guess I was more of a film guy like I don't want to say I'm not a film like we're doing a fucking film podcast and we're going to do many more films in the future but like I feel I was a little bit more of a, like a movie guy up until like I guess two three years ago and but like I used to go like all, all the time and like you know that's why these lists like as we've moved on the picks have been driven far more by you than they have by me and like yeah I yeah and and it's, and it's why if we decide to go and do 90s and 80s and stuff like that, mm-hmm. they'll probably be more driven by you yes, in a exactly. similar way where, like, I did not have a family growing up who were very invested in, like, my film knowledge. And so a lot of the stuff that I've done has been off my own back. Yeah. You and have because... no reverence for John Carpenter. And you're wrong. And maybe we'll prove it. But um... <laughs> <laughs> I, love, yeah. I love the thing. Thing's great, <laughs> but yeah, yeah. So I guess I thought with only two left, that should probably come up because I feel in a big movie podcast, I've kind of come across as a guy that doesn't really watch any movies and is a big old dullard. And it's like, yeah, I think when we get out of lockdown, I will be so desperate to leave the house again that I probably will start seeing more movies. But yeah, well, I that... think I think it's the difference. It's like because I used to be the big TV guy. Yeah, and when, I, when I just we like, met. You didn't watch movies. You would just you watched every fucking TV show that existed, and there were like customers who would try and dunk on you for this. And you're like, no. And I also have a girlfriend, and I do this, and I do this, and I do this. And it's like, burn sucker. Um, <laughs> and you just were like, not a movie guy. And now you've somehow like in the last three years, you've just taken this from me, and you've seen everything that comes out, and you don't watch as much. You watch like a human level of television now. Still, probably more than the average person, but. The main difference is, like, the TV that's easy accessible, because I think one part is, like, I've decided to cut down on, like, me watching stuff as it airs in America, which obviously <laughs> cuts to, like, a big issue in the UK is a lot of stuff doesn't air at the same time, or the stuff that does air at the same time is just not that interesting or very good. It's, like, every single Netflix original comes out, and, like, I think that's what's killed my enjoyment, is that <laughs> the only thing people I know watch and talk about is the Netflix originals. And it's like, fuck you, I'm not investing time in watching Tiger King. Like, well, neither am I, so I'm with you there. Um, But, like, I mean, that's the thing. It's like, when I think the shows that people have talked about this year, like, tentatively, I'm like, okay, The Boys and Mandalorian feels like things that I might get some enjoyment out of. I watched one episode of The Mandalorian and I was like, I don't dislike it, but I have zero desire to see any more of it. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Um, like you know, I, I've started Barry and Succession. Like I'm trying to catch up a well, bit on like, some I'm of the good the, stuff. Watching like, the HBO stuff, like the stuff yeah. that still feels like it's it's of good quality, whereas the Netflix stuff always feels like yeah, yeah. This could end after 13 episodes, and maybe they've done one episode worth of plot detail for a HBO mm. show. Like, do it's make a sure you watch all of Dash and Lily before um, Christmas Day, though. Obviously, is that, is that a genuine recommendation? Um, no, but. <laughs> If you want something really shit, 
<laughs> like I watched that dumbass one with Vanessa Hudgens and the the Nightman last year, and I was like, "This is awful," and I can't stop looking at it. <laughs> Something in that line. I mean, I think I mean like the stuff that I watch is like more like to be like Pen Fifteen. Sure, sure. Like, those kind of things, like uh, like yeah. that's what I'm more interested in watching TV. But yeah, for whatever reason, I think it was like we decided to get a limitless card at the local cinema yeah. and just started going. It became like when I would go see my partner because we didn't live together at first when when. Yeah. We got the cards. It was like, okay, this is date night. We'll go watch a movie, and it just evolved into like, oh, this local cinema. We'll carry on doing it when we yeah. move house. And I just think things. if the cinema were like a little bit closer, like if it were a walk instead of a two buses kind of situation, I probably would get something like that. But yeah, it's just, yeah, I, I, it just it feels like more of like, an ordeal to go. That's yeah, where I like, take exception. I have no problem with sitting and watching a movie. I do kind of take exception with like, okay, so I'm going to get home at like ten thirty, and I'm going to be out of the house for like you know x hours and i'm gonna have to catch this bus and like all of that i'm like i just can i just come home from work and just lock the doors please <laughs> yeah and again that feels like a lifetime ago now living um, in london where public transport is yeah. on a different level and there's <laughs> cinemas like i could walk to any cinema i want within about 15 minutes of me yeah. and watch a movie after work and then get the same train that i normally would home like it's a, a very key difference between the places where we work yeah, so speaking of all of that, not at all. <laughs> no, I like it. I like this no, contextual no, yeah. trip into 2019. Yeah. Uh, but we are going to jump back to 1868. Okay. That feels like a good year to start. <laughs> so it's like, yeah. 1868. So obviously this is the first part that isn't actually from the novels, which is uh, Joe March decides to go visit a publisher to see whether or not he's interested in uh, the story that she has written. Obviously, the publisher is played by Tracy Letts, who played uh, Saoirse Ronan's dad in Lady Bird. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's lovely to see the inverse of their chemistry, where Tracy Letts, uh, most famously known as Carrie Coon's husband. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> not, not, not celebrated playwright Tracy Letts. Um, <laughs> Carrie Coon's husband. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> they have such a warm and lovely relationship in Lady Bird, despite the fact that Lady Bird is a little, little shit. Right. Uh, and he puts up a lot of her shit in that movie in this it's fun to see him as this like gruff sexist man who's just like yeah this is fine cut half of it and also like make sure it's a bit more sexist <laughs> yeah oh what's the line like they want to see women fall in love not be consistent or something like that <laughs> it's like, yeah it's very funny like it's it's so offensive it's funny you know <laughs> Yeah, and if and if the if the lead is a woman, make sure she's married by the end or uh, dead or dead. Either way, it doesn't matter. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. Just, just uh, I, I love this like little framing story, and obviously it keeps on cropping up across the movie. Yeah. But it's just like it, this is when you start to tell this is not going to be the straight adaptation of Little Women you're you're used to. Yeah. But it it's only embellishing things that are well known for the text. Like yeah. we know that Joe March is the writer of the family. Like each of them has like a different artistic pursuit. Yes. Um, writer, actress, musician and uh, painter. painter. Yeah, yeah. I did write as my note Matt Waters scolds Joe for having an overly long story. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it did feel very much like I was filling that role. But, I yeah. do like that he gets like three pages in and just like crosses out an entire page. Yeah. It's just like <laughs> Yeah, end it before we get to the moral preaching. Like, you don't need to do any of this stuff. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, like, the stuff with Joe at this point is kind of setting up the end game of the movie. This is when, like, we meet Frederick Barr, like, when she goes mm. back to the home and all the rest of it, that she's that she's working as a teacher. 
yes, Frederick, not Friedrich, uh, <laughs> because they've gone French. So yeah, yeah, and they do sort of just jump between them all in this early bit. Like you go from that to like you see Amy in Paris, you see Meg sitting on the back, or she's buying the fabric, and and you see Beth just at a piano and, and stuff like that. I will say, so like Emma Watson famously replaced Emma Stone, Emma Stone. who re- she replaced in La La Land. Yeah, it's, it's annoying. I can't imagine Emma Stone playing this role. Is the thing like maybe mm. she brings a bit more life to Meg? I do plays- think Emma Watson gets shafted here, and like I think she's not actually the strongest actress. Is part of the problem, but she just for Meg to have a decent role in the book she is very forgotten about here like well like eliza scanlon is is the least famous of of the quartet but because like she has the enormous story of fucking dying she feels like a bigger deal and meg it just feels like it's like yeah she's poor and her husband's quite nice and it's like oh okay <laughs> like and you lose a lot of the like meg is supposed to be very vain in the book like like and you you see a very vague hint of it, like when she goes to like the debutante ball and stuff like that. But like, I don't know. It just feels like her characterization is much more just like Hermione Granger. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know whether or not it is a case of like. Obviously, Greta Gerwig is far more interested in the contrast between Joe and Amy, which yeah, obviously yeah. is as as we've said, like is not something that a lot of people bring back from the book like amy is like mm. if if you are an amy you're seen as being like the least likable of the original sisters i oh. feel like you're more likely to be a joe or a meg mm-hmm. um if you just read the like obviously like historically like if you read the book everyone goes like which of the little women are you <laughs> yeah it was sex in the city before it's time <laughs> <laughs> exactly but it's just, i just i think it is just the service of like because the movie is two hours and change mm. there isn't enough room to give room to like everyone and obviously they are that what they're really drilling down to here is like joe amy teddy are the three Mm. and then everyone else gets to have like a little scene or play off of someone but yeah i just i feel she was a little bit floating adrift in a way that everyone else was able to find like a pocket in the movie to be effective in i feel she was just kind of the odd one out again maybe maybe if they get emma stone yeah like who has to drop out because like she's doing it wasn't even the movie it was like promotion of the favorite wasn't it it was the favorite awards run because obviously Ah. i think they realized that all three of the actresses in the favorite were like going to do well at awards season so it's like right let's keep them on couches and in people's minds across this winter yeah because obviously like that's when they were filming the film so she had to just drop out Mm. and again emma watson is fine and serviceable in terms of what it is i just i just feel like emma stone is a better actress she is a more charismatic presence and i also kind of feel obviously i don't want to make this an aesthetic thing but like if you're going for a character in meg who starts out very vain and obsessed with her looks and is like notably incredibly attractive and then like ends up falling for a poor man and like living you know a poor man's wife kind of thing I think she would have fit that better as well. Like, I think she could be a bit more of an it girl than Emma Watson yeah. is capable of being. Um, it, where yeah. Emma, Emma feels more like a Beth to me, but... Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, think, I think it is just a case of, like, maybe with a more charismatic actress or, like, someone who has a bit more oomph and star power yeah. to pivot more into Meg, and so, like, maybe there's Meg scenes on the cutting room floor yeah. and stuff like that. Whereas... I, yeah, I mean, like, ultimately, if, if it was going to take away from Saoirse and Florence, like, I wouldn't want it. It's just, that's what I felt while watching it. It's sort of like, everyone's got a deal, what's yours? Like, you're poor, like, okay. 
Right. And then yeah, just, think... and then nothing even really comes of it because he just is like, no, fuck it, we're gonna make it work. It's like, okay, we will then. <laughs> it's like, all right, cool. I mean, that's um, that's the most intriguing thing. It's like if you get Emma Stone, Emma Stone is arguably a bigger star than anyone else in this movie. Yeah, and then she and takes screen time away from like the best parts. So yeah. yeah, and and obviously like she has proven that she is happy to play what is functionally third lead in the favorite. So, like, it's not like she isn't willing to take these supporting roles. I think it's she would just... have been ecstatic to do this, to be honest. Like, oh, I, yeah, could, I, think... I could see her loving doing it. Um, and, like, I would like to have seen her with this cast. Like, I'd like to see her have scenes with, um, you know, everyone in this. But, um, yeah, you know, it is what it is. But Yeah, I think she's got the energy possibly a bit more than Emma Watson. Because, obviously, Emma Watson, she grew up on a very particular kind of film set. And... The, the, the ways you see Emma Watson kind of floundering the most are the scenes with all of them together and the cross-talking dialogue. Yeah, she just she just shrinks away from that completely. <laughs> um, Which, yeah, is sad, but, like, yeah. again, Meg is, Meg is probably the fourth of the, the four sisters. Yeah, oh, for sure. It's just knowing that that is the big characterization for her, it felt like that was missing a bit. But instead we get, you know, like, like Saoirse starts the movie so well with those little yeah, my friend, and like, you know, being that sort of cheeky kind of tomboyish character, and then like, you know, seeing Amy in Paris, you know, from the jump, so obvious that she's madly in love with Laurie, like, you know, stopping her carriage to talk to him kind of thing, and every time I see Timothy Chalamet, I'm surprised he's a good actor, and like, <laughs> because, I'll tell you what it was, it was the scene... So I'm going to jump because they jump, and I don't know if you had plans to move it in a special way, but, you know. No, 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 go, where, go for so, it. You know, I'm, like, I'm happy to jump around. <laughs> so they run into each other in Paris because, you know, he's a very wealthy man, and or, you know, <laughs> the grandson of a very wealthy man. And she's like, oh, yeah, yeah, come to this big party. And, like, you know, she's she's set up with um, Fred Vaughan or whatever. She's supposed to marry him. And then Laurie rocks up at the party late and very drunk, and he just... The energy that Chalamet brings to that, I was like, you look like the world's wettest blanket. You look like a 12-year-old Victorian ghost boy. And yet, when you start acting, you're capable of defying that. And, like, he has such, like, energy and assertiveness and charisma when he's, like... When he says, like, Fred Vaughn, ladies and gentlemen, and, like, throws his champagne in the air. I'm like, how do you do it? Like, it's, it's acting is, is the answer to that. It's acting, but, but he's such... He's so good at playing a fuckboy. <laughs> like, he plays a fuckboy in Ladybird. And I think, like, because obviously, like, again, it's a very different relationship between Saoirse and, and Timothy Chalamet in this movie. But, like, I think it has proven that Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet and Greg Gerwig should work together a lot in the future mm-hmm. because yeah. they're really fucking good together. And obviously, like, we can add Florence Pugh into that now because that's <laughs> who he shares the most scenes with. Yeah. But, like, just the difference in terms of, like, him walking on the carriage, being charismatic, like, the light peck on the cheek of yeah. Aunt Marge, and... <laughs> when he asks her to dance at the wedding as well, it's quite funny. Like, there's, you don't even hear the dialogue, but just, yeah, it's really good. Yeah. I, I think that's one of the strengths, is that, like, obviously the book is famous for, like, everyone is, like, Team Joe and Laurie and everything, and it's it's very, like, Amy is the, like, controversial... Yeah, yeah, exactly, and, like, I think this movie, like, obviously, Sir Sharon and Timothy have, like, incredible chemistry. And, like, when you see their first meeting seven years earlier and they're, like, doing the awful dancing outside the house, it's 
it's so heartwarming. Like, it, it, it's wonderful. And you're like, oh, these two, I just like watching them be pals kind of thing. But then, and so, like, some part of you was like, yeah, get it together, guys. But then, like, I think Florence Pugh is so good, and they've treated Amy with so much more, like... Um, Nuance and yeah, respect. Yeah, exactly, yeah. That, like, by the end of it, you're like, fuck yeah, I'm Team Amy and Laurie. Like, <laughs> go get like, your this, man. This makes <laughs> sense. Like, the, yeah. the speech that Joe makes when she's, like, talking to Laurie near the end of the movie at the top of the hill, mm-hmm. and is just like... We would drive each other crazy. Mm-hmm. Like we have and this she's chemistry. She's right, and she's so right. Like they are so di- like for as much as he enjoys being the rebellious rich boy, he is still the rich boy that goes to all of these fine, like events and everything. Even if he is the one that turns up drunk with two women and you know all that sort of shit, but like that is still his world, and it is very much not hers. So I think I think my favorite thing about Teddy in this. Mm. Or, or Timothy Chalamet, or just like what, how he kind of embodies it is, and the, the, the reason I call him, again calling him Teddy just because Joe calls him Teddy is like mm-hmm. feels like such a personal or personability kind of thing. But like I like that he's this like chaotic being that shows up and yeah. that says these incredibly barbed but very truthful things to like yeah. most of the girls. Uh, he doesn't have a big scene with Beth, but like no, but no one really. Does. I mean, well, Joe does, but yeah, yeah. Because she's like the, the shy fact, one, and that's cute. Yeah, but the fact he gets these scenes with Joe and Meg and Amy, where he comes in and says something, and is just like cuts yeah. so thoroughly to their cause, and is so completely correct in his readings of them. Yeah, like it feels like he should have no business having any kind of relationship with Meg at all. Like it's like he's in the triangle with Joe and Amy, but and then that scene just works so well, where he's, you know, like their families have spent so much time together, and that like he is this guy that sort of floats between all of their lives, kind of thing. And like for a second, you're like, oh god, is it a, is it a love quartet? Kind of is that a love rhombus or something? But no, he's just genuinely there as a pal like and just sort of in the same way that like frederick tells joe like yeah your writing is bad you're a good writer but this is bad he's kind of like you know this is ridiculous but you're a wonderful person kind of thing let's have a dance kind of thing and like yeah Yeah. he's a nice guy like fuck boy ish yes fuck boy adjacent (laughs) i would say but you know yeah yeah i i love that scene with meg and obviously that is jumping ahead but like (laughs) Obviously, he's so blunt in the first time he says it, where he's just like, why are you letting them call you Daisy? Why are you letting them walk all over you? And it's because she so thoroughly wants to be a society girl. She wants to be above her station. She wants the money and the glitz and the glamour of this kind of stuff. And he's just like, that's not you. You're better than this. And she's just like, just for a weekend. Don't tell Joe. Yeah. Let me enjoy this whilst I'm away. And then then she ends up marrying Dirt Poor and like, yeah, he's right. That is who she is. Um, even if she likes the finer things and like, uh, like she almost hands that over to Amy, <laughs> kind of thing. That's the thing. It's like, and again, like that. Again, jumping ahead, like the speech that Amy makes when she's <sighs> like, "My elder sister has married below her status. Yes. Joe is probably never going to get married. My sister is sick. Sick. I am." I'm the oldest and the wittiest and the gossip in New York City. Oh, sorry. No, completely different thing. (laughs) I am the only one in my family who is going to be capable of doing this. And for a woman my age who is not a genius but is only talented, Mm. it's an economic proposition. Well, like, Aunt March is basically like, you're the only hope for the family now. Yeah, exactly. The money might carry forward, but my son has wasted the money. You need to find a new way of doing it to support your family. And, like, your mum is into charity, but, like, that is not... Yeah. 
Well, speaking of which, I guess. <laughs> yes. So, uh, like, after all this setup, obviously, like, we do get like Joe going home after Frederick says that she's bad at writing because she has the letter saying that Beth's uh, ill. But like, we get the first flashback seven years early where Joe meets Laurie, and then Christmas morning when they like they all come downstairs and like they're getting ready for for their breakfast or Christmas breakfast, hmm. and then Mum just like, uh, some people came round. They're hungry. Should we just take our breakfast round to their place? Yes, let's go meet Beth's eventual killers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, and I, I, I had a real difficult time getting a handle on how rich they're supposed to be. Like, they don't feel like they're supposed to be super wealthy, but they're, they're also they're not in squalor. I think Louise May Alcott lived in actual poverty. Yeah, uh, when she was a child, like her father was notoriously bad with money, mm-hmm. and so this is her going like vaguely aspirational like kind of they are comfortable if yeah. they weren't so nice like i think the the issue yeah. that they've got is that like both mother and father are very prone to charity and for doing things for free i think they mentioned that their father is a teacher for freed men before he goes to fight for, in the civil war and it's like this idea that like he is doing something that is no monetary reward for doing it like yeah. he comes from this rich family where he could have a lot of wealth and instead he's decided I'm going to make life better for people who have nothing, yeah. and and that kind of uh, sensibility has been bred into like his his wife and his children. Yeah. How about Laura Dern, ladies and gentlemen? Oh, um, she's so fucking good. Yeah. <laughs> like, Work, working for both Greta and Noah. <laughs> yeah, and obviously yeah. she wins the Oscar for her performance in Marriage Story, which is very very good. But I like mm. this as like not seething rage, but like someone who is so torn in like what to do the right thing, like when she rocks up to the house and like wipes the tear away and then goes inside and goes like come on let's take our food to these starving children yeah her line again jumping um her line about i am angry every single day is fantastic uh and makes so much sense because like you know she does come across as just like relentlessly optimistic and joyous and moral and like you know to give all of their food to a poor family on christmas morning kind of thing and like the girls are obviously disappointed but then like we just cut to them like you know they've got their little picnic baskets or you know like little hampers and they're just skipping and laughing and like it's all a good time and i like that this good deed is rewarded by um or chris cooper himself uh just yeah like okay you gave away some food here's a ridiculous amount of food to replace it Um, and again like i just floods of tears at this point just people being nice to each other yeah yes like (laughs) And Chris it's, Cooper it's just, of all it's people. Just, <laughs> it's just so heartwarming and lovely, yeah. and I adore it. And like them going like, "Oh, it must be like Laurie has convinced his grandfather to give us the money, so therefore we must befriend him." And like just the start of this relationship, and just being mm. incredibly nice. And then obviously they read the letter from their father, who's fighting the civil war. And I like their little I, formation they're sitting in, kind of thing. And you know, Beth sitting at the back kind of thing, because she's going to cry. Yeah, it's just so... It's so nice every time you see a scene with them all together, and I think think that's where the cutting back and forth works so well, where, like, if you'd done it linearly and you started with most of the first half of it, all of... They're just all together all the time, and then you suddenly split them off, I think it would have been quite jarring. But instead, to see them in their separate situations and then remembering the happier times and knowing how joe feels about marriage and everything of like this is something that takes my family away from me 
yeah, I, I think that is powerful as well, like that she is so family oriented. I mean, I, I do want to take this a little bit chronological just because like yeah. <laughs> so many of these so many of these scenes are so iconic because obviously following this, you get Amy drawing the picture of her her teacher at school and <laughs> basically getting punished for it. And then her little performance when she comes to the house and Teddy sees her through the window is like, there's a girl down there. <laughs> there's not. There is <gasps> like a girl. <laughs> yeah. And her just petulant, like, she shows the hand, and she's like, I didn't even do anything. <laughs> yeah, and then just, like, taking this whole family in for the afternoon kind of thing. And, and it's the chaos that they bring, and I think that's what <laughs> I love about it, is, like, at first it's just Amy, like, looking at the pictures and going, like, I want you to buy this picture for me, please. <laughs> and then the other sisters come in, and it just gets progressively louder and louder and louder as they start going, like, I love books, books are my favourite. I'm borrowing this book, I like this piano. <laughs> yeah. And then, yeah. and then, obviously, they get ushered out the room, and just the the set the like loudness goes, and then it's just Chris Cooper, James Norton, and Timothy Chalamet in a room, and it's just so quiet, and it's mm. just like, I love the idea that like even though they're loud and possibly a little bit obnoxious, just the amount of joy that they yeah. bring to these people's lives, and like, yeah, like it, it's loud, but it's like a happy kind of loud. It's like a sense of living. Yeah, and and, and the book puts a heavy focus on like the two families, like bonding over like over the years. Like they they spend all their time together, kind of thing. Because um, you know that that is a house of it's it's houses of predominantly women and predominantly men, kind of thing. And they're both missing the energy of each other, kind of thing. And you know that uh, Mister Lawrence is kind of this sad old man who like misses his dead daughter and stuff like that and yeah i mean his his relationship with beth is one of my favorite things i know you're like waiting for it to turn ugly and it never does and that's so it, lovely <laughs> <laughs> like obviously it starts here where he's just like oh i noticed that beth isn't with us like i have a piano that's quiet does she want to come over whenever and just this like subtext like mm. he sends the piano to their house yeah. So that she can play it, and and like she goes around to play the piano, and he sits and like cries on the stairs and stuff like that. And then, yeah. obviously, the combination of all that is like when Beth dies, and he meets Joe on the way to the house. Is just like I can't bring yeah. myself to go inside the house, and like that's like mm. more so than anyone else reacting to Beth's death. That is the moment that like absolutely crushes me. Yeah, is that like this man has lost both of his daughter figures. Yeah, yeah, totally, and and. Yeah, the piano at the end, like when no one will play it, and, and Frederick does. It's so like, yeah, it's it's so good. Like, like structurally, I think this movie is a real delight. And obviously, I understand that like you have to keep up with it. But like, just the the way that they set things up, where like they like set up and payoff is so exceedingly good in mm. this movie. For sure, uh, but. I mean, like again, it's just little fun things. Like obviously, the the first big anti-Amy moment in the book <laughs> is when Meg, Joe, Laurie, and John all go to the theater, and Amy is not invited because she's a bit too young. Yes. And so, in petty response, she basically goes into into Joe's drawer and burns her novel. And yeah. I think, like for so many people, this is like the irredeemable moment. Like there, there is nothing that she can do yeah. to like be redeemed in people's eyes at this point. And, and it obviously... should be, but <laughs> yeah, I think just that touch they bring to the Amy character and like Florence's performance, it somehow becomes a redeemable act. Um... I think, I think because they've already shown you adult Amy before this point. Yeah. Like, like 
she has obviously grown up and matured and so the 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 difference between the two performances of her as a young child and being this like petulant brat and her being this more level-headed aware of her place in the world aware of the way that her sisters have kind of like rebuked their standing in life and being like well i'm the only one who can do this like like it kind of like fits into this place where it's just like eventually she's going to be the mature level-headed one Mm -hmm. in some ways and obviously like you can I love that this it doesn't become a judgmental thing like it's very easy to write a feminist piece nowadays that is kind of like hoorah I don't need no man yeah I think it's a very different kind of feminism to go that some people do feel that that is something that they need yeah right. like, like the idea of intersectional feminism where like the idea of feminism is yes there are, if you are trying to get in the way of other women's rights that is bad mm-hmm. but like we have to let people want the things that they actually yeah, want. Yeah, like, you're not not a feminist if you want, like, the big wedding and you like dresses and flowers and pink and, you know, that, you, you, that doesn't make you any less of a feminist. Uh, so, obviously, this ends with Amy burning the book, uh, Joe being very, very mad and basically just starting a one-woman war on her <laughs> sister. Yeah. Uh, which, obviously, eventually culminates in Amy almost dying because she falls into a frozen lake. Yes, a little bit. Um... <laughs> Yeah, and I I like that because we're also at this in amongst this like we're seeing the like Laurie's like utter adoration of Joe. Like I think my favorite flashback is when they're they're being the men together. Like they're being yes. yeah, like the the very wise men's club or whatever it is, and like getting to hear their like authentic accents and stuff like that. Like that is that one is so joyous and like you know. Chalamet like bursting out from behind the clothes and stuff and he like gives her the little key and you know that will pay off later but like just little things like you know they go to the play and then when they're coming out he tries to link arms with Joe and she like punches him and then goes and links arms with um with Meg and like pulls Meg away from John as well it's like yeah this is great character work in just a simple action kind of thing yeah yeah and like you know that it's not that Joe doesn't like Laurie. I think Laurie is in many ways Joe's best friend. And, like, just seeing them, like, play together and, like, be so boisterous and fuck around and, like, you know, just little... Like, when there's, like, a cat, you know, they're sending Meg off to her little fancy weekend and the the two of them are, like, faux sword fighting almost. It's all really good. And, like, yeah, that it leads to the ice skating and and, and uh, Amy almost dying. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so Amy almost dies yes. in this scene. And obviously, like... I think this is what the movie really, really enforces is that like, at the end of the day that they are sisters and they do love each other even in, in yes. spite of all of this stuff. Yes. I know my um, sister like I know my own mind. Um, yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and that sisterly bond is is beautiful throughout. That they, they completely adore each other or four of them. Like even when Joe and Amy are like at each other's throats and like they have multiple little fight scenes together. They're still just so warm and everything. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's now that we basically so basically, um Marmy has to leave mm-hmm. because she gets the notification that like their father has been taken or is he wounded or is he just taken ill? I think he's wounded, but yeah. I don't know. Yeah, taken in the middle of the civil war. And obviously like important to notice here, this is a very white movie. Oh yeah. <laughs> and uh well it's a period piece, it has to be. <laughs> like there <laughs> are like, only white people existed in this era. I think it's the biggest complaint against it. And obviously I believe Little Women is a very white book. It is set against the backdrop of the American Civil War. 
the freeing of the slaves and the moral side of like where the family stands is obviously often brought up. Yeah. But I think the only significant scene of a black character speaking in this movie is in the like few seconds before Mommy finds out that her husband has been wounded. Yeah. <laughs> like it it's this weird thing where like this huge thing is going on in the background and it makes sense in terms of the fact it's about the little women. They're not aware of the politics of the time. But mm. like you get a couple of conversations about what's going on. There are no black characters in this movie whatsoever. And it's not like every movie needs to have black characters. It's just it's, very... It's notable. very notably white. Yes. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But yeah, so that she goes away. And in this time, Beth being the the loveliest of all of them, like because all the rest of them kind of get caught up in their own bullshit mm. at this point. Like this is when Amy's like wanting to make the cast of her feet and all the rest of it, and <laughs> and Beth is just like I'm gonna go be the loveliest lovely person that's ever been lovely. Yeah, I think um, at, at various points, I don't know if all three of them do, but certainly Joe and Amy basically say she's the best of us kind of thing. She basically goes to carry on feeding the humbled, but in the process catches scarlet fever yes. that Mr. Lawrence spots when he goes to gift her a piano. Yeah, and this is this is obviously when you start to intercut it between the the past and the future, where once Joe is returned home, she's mm. like, I'm going to take her to the beach and get her well through Yeah, this, this very, like, <laughs> old-timey idea of medicine is like, oh, just go by the sea. Yeah, that, that'll make you just so much better. Go live by the sea. Yeah, for sure. And it is interesting because like it's the like we know that Amy ends up in Paris or in, ends up in Europe and you get this moment of like, oh yeah, she's got scarlet fever. Have any have you all had it? And it's like, oh Amy hasn't. A- Amy'll have to go away and it's like and that's why she and also like she starts to bond with Aunt March more as like because Joe is very defiant and and not ladylike and everything and Aunt March is a very heteronormative uh, person. I mean, it's, it's Meryl Streep turning up, like, and I think it's, it's my favorite thing about this movie is that like a lot of below the line people are like seven or eight levels too overqualified to play the role that they're in. Yeah, like Meryl Streep shows up for about four scenes, is a bit of a bitch, <laughs> uh, but she changes this movie. Like she, she, Amy's big monologue came from Meryl Streep insisting they do it, and it's written on. It's written by hand by Greta Gerwig on set, memorised by Florence Pugh in like 10 minutes, and then it's staggeringly good when when her and Laurie are talking in her little studio and stuff, and she, she says, like, I have very few career options. If I do manage to make some money and then I get married, it all belongs to my husband. My children will be my husband, etc., etc. And it's just like, you know, you can never forget that this is how it is. But it yeah, is I, startling to be sort of hit over the head with it that much. I love the difference between Joe and Amy that is brought up by this. Where mm. it's like, Meryl Streep is obviously fought against the system and doesn't want Joe to end up like her. Where she's like, I'm rich, it doesn't matter that I've never married. Yeah. But Joe is going to continue fighting against the systems that are in place of this. Whereas mm. Amy has heard all the same stories, presumably, that Joe has heard. And said she's just like, that's the way the system is, I'm not going to fight my place in it i'm gonna make the best of my position that i can have like she's sad about it obviously but like and she but she's like i'll go be a a nice ornament to society and stuff like that yeah i will i will practice my other talents to society and yeah florence is so good she's so good (laughs) 
just queue up every line of hers in the movie and play them in a row. There you go. It's 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 such. Again, I, I hate that we're bashing on about it, but just like every single facet of this performance is so fucking good that it works in spite of the fact that Florence Pugh is definitely in the, especially in the past scenes, not that person. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, and like you know, she's having the nice conversation with Laurie in the park about you know, does she love Fred Vaughn and, and all of this, and like it's it's been very clear since minute one that Amy is madly in love with Laurie, Laurie loves Joe, Joe loves her family. (laughs) And seeing uh, Laurie, like, gradually fall for Amy, not as, like, a... Like, I can't have Joe, so I'll have Amy, and then the second Joe comes calling, I'll drop Amy kind of thing. Like, it is a... They do play a tiny bit of that near the end, but it's funnier than it is, like, (laughs) dramatic. And like yeah, like it did, I think the scenes they have together, the the three or four they have in Europe, they they have such chemistry and like it's so well written that like yeah you're fully on board with like Team Laurie Amy kind of thing. Yeah, and, I I love that she's so repentant or like so hesitant to do it. Where she's like I've always been second fiddle to Joe. Yeah. Oh yeah yeah. Oh God. When don't you dare! Like I've loved you my whole life. I've been second to Joe my whole life. Kind of thing. Like yeah. Like, don't you dare, like, get, throw me a token, I want to bone you kind of thing. <laughs> yeah, like, I am um, I am not for this. Like, Fred Vaughn is richer than you, potentially better in society. Like, do not tease me with the idea that I could actually marry for love. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like, what an idea. Um, and, you know, throughout all of this, he is wearing the ring that, that Joe gave him, like, just completely offhand in one of the flashback scenes and he still wears the ring and she mocks him for it like you know that ridiculous ring that you still wear and everything but yeah they they managed to make what is a very like heteronormative norm core romance like she's always loved him and like it doesn't sap her of any strength or anything like she is come into being this like fantastically more mature character through her experiences and she still gets her like you know, she gets her man kind of thing, and it's like, yeah, this works. This isn't patronising drivel. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I, it's utterly lovely, but yes. obviously it's all against the backdrop. Like, like, they will not tell Beth to co- uh, They will not tell Amy to come home that Beth is dying, mm-hmm. and so you just get these, like, these two contrasting examples of, like, how they're taking care of their sister yeah. in these, these two timelines, and obviously, like, we, like, just the difference in between it and then obviously my one of my favorite like intercut moments is joe waking up in the seat Mm. seeing that her sister has vanished and then like storming down the stairs and finding her sister at the the dinner table on like christmas morning or whatever like happily eating her breakfast yeah uh and then like obviously a couple seconds a couple minutes later you intercut it or you you do the exact same shots except joe is so much less full of energy and like i imagine she's she's aware that beth has already died yeah at this point, I, it isn't coming downstairs to the realization that Beth has died. It's just changing the the kind of like the circumstances of it and contrasting the two moments and and Joe and Mommy holding each other in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, and like, yeah, like the scenes of like her holding her and reading to her on the beach and stuff like that. And like, you know, I'm very sick. You must do what I say, kind of thing. Like, it gives Beth a sense of. Like, she is the shy one, and she is the one that dies of sickness and everything, but, like, they they manage to find her some little character moments here and there that, she, that she's not just 
it's not a fridge, is it? But you know, she's not there entirely just to to show up and die, kind of thing. Um, and they have this no, really nice no, chemistry, and, and, she, and, and, and she's I, the one that's like, you know, keep writing for me. And then we know she's accept, you know, even when I'm not here, and like that thing that she's accepted it, which leads to like, you know, I got you better before, and then just cutting back and forth, and like, you know, Joe spooning her and all this sort of stuff, and then yeah, yeah just so tragic when you know she comes down and it's mommy in the kitchen crying kind of thing yeah i i love the contrast between the way that meg and beth treat joe's writing yeah where like meg feels like such a like oh you're the best writer i've ever known you're the new generation of shakespeare and whereas beth is like i like your stories please carry on writing like yeah. it feels like less overtly and like huge in praise than what meg is doing but just like you're good you're talented carry on doing this it feels like yeah that's almost what's preparing her for, for Frederick's like very brutal takedown. Mm-hmm. Uh, and obviously I love the, the contrast between the line that he does early on in the movie where he's like, Shakespeare smuggled poetry in his in his prose to the masses and yeah. Joe going, I am not Shakespeare. And then Frederick going like, good. We, we have a Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, have don't a Shakespeare. don't be the next whatever, be the first Joe March. Yeah. And I think that's a very good line as well, because like that's kind of what Little Women did, in that it was this kind of, you know, she thought it was bad, her publisher thought it was bad, it was written for money, it was just for mass appeal, but it had kind of a more profound effect than maybe anyone was anticipating, and she kind of snuck some like radical values in there, in what is yeah. ostensibly just kind of like a boring slice of life women and their little marriages and whatever like yeah, as, yeah. as as she says to meg near the end of the book uh, near the end of the movie when she's like explain what book she's writing it's just like it's just a little book about domestic domestic troubles like yeah. it's not the kind it's of shocking that, that it sold so well but i guess it's just like women were denied like an everyday experience i guess and it's just you know the idea of being starved for content when we're now drowning in it is uh is, yes, it's yeah, stark. and I, I love that the impetus is like Beth dying and her going, I need to write for this, my sister, yeah. for my sister, and you the, the the just lovely, wonderful montage of her writing this novel in the attic, and obviously mm. like it's where she does most of her writing. Uh, even Friedrich calls her like the girl in the attic in his like letter to her and stuff like that. But like the way that she's like dotted lines on the floor to like put where the book's going to be and then she has to expand it because the story takes on a life of its own and mommy bringing her lunch and the candles all over the place where you would set back and like it's going to set on fire it's going to set on fire yeah i like like I, I particularly like like seeing her lay all the pages of the novel out on the floor like i i used to have walls and doors covered in post-it notes like moving scenes around that kind of stuff so like yeah i, I get it I, I love her little uh i say little her, her big green writing jacket you know <laughs> yeah, big yeah like, I, I love that but we the kind of like the, the book end of the movie kind of culminates with meg's wedding yes. where like this is when all the pieces come into place of like we set up where everyone's going to go. Because obviously, like, one of the tensions is we know Amy's going to Paris, but Joe's been told she's going to Paris, but... And, like, she wants, you know, for her, it's like, how grand Europe, writing, literature, culture, blah, 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 blah. And and Amy's like, ooh, rich people in finery. (laughs) And, And that she does have that frosty relationship with Aunt March, but, like, if she keeps it just sweet enough, she might just get to go to Europe, but then that's taken from her, kind of thing. That's Yeah. yeah. On this wedding day, in Ugh. which Joe tries to convince her sister to like run away with her, 
And Mori then, decides to propose. Yeah, and like, I think both of these are played so well with like Joe's big pitch. Like, she can't imagine anything more terrifying than being taken from the family. You know, it basically was like that. You are taken from the family by a man to go and belong to a man and go be a separate thing. And she just genuinely is like, you know, this is a hostage situation. <laughs> Let's run away. And like, you'll be bored of him in two years will be interesting forever because they've always just perfectly gotten along and like had fun and always got up to these wacky events. You know, they put on plays together and like, you know, she obviously wants to write and be good, but like, you know, the, the childhood experience of like, she wrote a little play they all put it on together. Beth played the music, like, and they entertained all the kids, and like, you know, that's pure and everything. She's like, we can just do this forever, but like, Meg is like, no, but I, I love this man. I want to go and live a life with this man, and like, yeah, it's it. I think it is very big for like the reading of Joe, and like, I think Sir Sharon and I think possibly her best acting in the whole movie is just before Laurie, like before he's even said anything she knows what he's going to say and like i think the two of them crush this scene where she's just like no and he's like no come on we must we simply must talk about this and yeah that's just it's just fucking fantastic and like yeah all, all of her reasoning and he is just like but i love you <laughs> like, and it's like yeah well I don't think she loves anyone, bud. Because <laughs> like, I, I don't pretend I potentially don't read her as much as queer as I do Ace. Like I think she just has no time for any of this, and she just wants to achieve and write and be brilliant and love her family. Like it's not like there's a lady character that comes along and she's like a little bit intrigued by them instead. But it's definitely a non-hetero uh, character. Oh, <laughs> like she's dressing in like. I think they even got her the same costumes as Laurie a little like they're basically wearing the same clothes. I think I think that's why like and obviously one of the most popular canonical things that people do is I think there was a graphic novel released last year that did make Joe explicitly queer. Mm-hmm. And obviously this doesn't go quite that far but like Louisa May Alcott never got married. Yep. Uh very famously I I don't think there's any like notification or like or or proof that she maybe was a lesbian but it's definitely like a popular reading of joe because sure. of the the tomboyish nature one of the key pop points is she gets her hair cut short and she doesn't seem particularly fussed yeah she dresses like a boy she spends yeah. her time around boys um, i think she i think louisa uh said like i've always preferred men. like she didn't know any women to write about only her sisters kind of thing which is why you end up with this because she just always preferred the company of men kind of yeah and yeah. I, I think it is that interesting. This has always been a case of this character where an awful lot of lesbians read themselves onto Joe and this coming out process and, and denying themselves this kind of thing. And mm. obviously the the bookend to this scene is the one in the future where she's talking to Mommy in the attic mm. when, like, she's years later she's finally come around to the idea that, like, I want to do all these things. I want to to be this great writer, but at the end of the day, I'm so lonely. Yes. Yeah. But like, yeah. And like saying, if I were a girl in a book, I would just give, it would be easy. I'd give up the world kind of thing that like, she almost resents her desire to like be in, to do something meaningful and important. And it, she talks about, you know, women are more than their hearts. Like they have, they have heads and they have souls and, and, but she does, 
yeah, she is alone in that feeling. Like, she feels like she doesn't have... Like, her sisters are, like... Like, Meg has basically left her, kind of thing. Um, has chosen a man over her, almost. And, like, you know, it's not actually like that, but that's how it feels for her. And, yeah, that, like, she wants... And I think... I, I, I feel it's just, like, you know, Laurie was her best friend. And, like, she just misses that. And, and he... He does big old incel her, where, like, you know, when she rejects him, he just stops responding to her letters and goes to Europe kind of thing. So that kind of sucks. But, yeah, but, like, she misses him, and, like, that was simple, and it's almost like she's trying to, like, com- negotiate with herself. Like, you know, maybe I could talk myself into the romance bit as long as I just got my friend Teddy back kind of thing. And they go as far as to, like, you know, she writes him a love letter, essentially, and puts it in their little secret post box, and she talks to, to Mommy about it, and it's like, you know, do you love him, or, like, do you want... And she she makes that distinction of, like, I want to be loved. And it's like, well, that's not the same, is it? You want to feel the warmth of, like, that. She wants to... She wants to live in the family flashbacks forever, basically. <laughs> and just they are all changing, and she has ended up alone, and yeah it's yeah it's all very sad <laughs> yeah and i it's the idea that like she's so lonely her sister's died mm. meg's gone away like amy's in paris and like i think they've always had the most contentious relationship with all of them where like yeah probably the sister that she's least close to yeah and she's lost laurie and so the idea is like maybe i can finally get this back if i say yes now and do what society wants me to do mm-hmm then like I can sort of, of this pe- string it back together a little bit, and yeah, yeah and, and also pain, like Amy's like, like like stolen a potential future from her of going to Europe as well, and yeah, yeah, just so tragic. Like she's so broken down by all of this stuff that she's just like I, I feel obligated to do the thing that I said I would never do yeah, because yeah. I think it will it will get rid of this loneliness, and then. Whilst this is playing out, we know that Laurie and and Amy are getting closer and closer. Like she's rejected Fred, uh, Vaughan. Fred Vaughan's proposal. Yeah, and it almost it, looks like that's gonna blow up in her face as well. Where like, you know, Laurie basically propositions her. She's like, "Go fuck yourself," and then like Laurie leaves before she can tell him that like that she said no to Fred, but then they do end up, uh, you know, they have the big passionate kiss, like, yeah, like, in a, in a largely sort of sexless genre, <laughs> it's quite a horny kiss for, for this kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah, like, where you think that Meg giving John a peck on the cheek is about as sexy as it's gonna get, it's like, oh, oh look at him go, he's doing the, the face-cupping kiss. Yeah, and like, you know, them arriving back him, him just accidentally letting slip mm. that Amy is his wife. Yes, I don't think it's an accident. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and like they, they almost turn it around. You know, she has to go and destroy her letter, and he's like, you know, yeah, you were so right. Like, and I think he does have so much more in common with Amy, and he just, just I think men get fixated on the unrequited part, and like he got over that childish crush he I had just... on someone who, like, you know. They're good friends, but like that doesn't mean it's gonna work out. <laughs> yeah, it's just it, all of it is so tragic. Like the idea that like she was fully like written this letter, fully ready to like yeah. give her life to this man, and then he comes and goes like, "Point your sister." <laughs> yeah, well, it's a long trip. <laughs> and she's crushed. But, she's crushed, but I do think that she sees 
the good side of it because yeah. like there is no conflict there afterwards. No. no. Like she doesn't punish Amy or I do like that Florence I do like that Florence plays it as like Amy is so at Joe's mercy in that moment kind of thing where she's sort of waiting for the permission and then gets it, of course. Joe then sort of befriending Mr. Lawrence a little bit and yeah, yeah and they like, they they do it's... they do briefly do the thing of like when Frederick comes like Laurie's like who's this man kind of thing <laughs> and, you know like, he's very jealous but like I, I like that he's jealous but it feels more in a way of like I am the man in Joe's Joe's life <laughs> kind of way yes I'm the only like, man I... in this family <laughs> well the best thing is I I don't I think he sees that like if Joe isn't going to marry me then mm. she's not going to marry anyone and it's why Joe marrying. Friedrich is like a such a betrayal of what the characters have been going on about for a book and a half and like obviously Joe voices that to the publisher when eventually he decides to publish the book and it's just like this goes in the face of everything the character was about and he's like yeah but that's how the book has to end <laughs> um, yeah. and, I, and I think they get that with Teddy where he's just like what like again they get to voice the displeasure of it and you kind of on Teddy's side it's like yeah who is this he's not worthy of Joe mm. yeah well yeah and, and like I mean, the scene is lovely. Him arriving and and bonding with the family, and it's this very somber occasion where, like, it th- this is their like everyone eating and him bringing up the piano and stuff like that, and it's just melancholic, but just having mm. this lovely conversation, which ends with him playing the piano and then leaving, and everyone going like, "The fuck are you doing? He you love him." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a great energy to that. Where like you know we move from their little awkward goodbye at the door to, like, all of them, like, ooh, kind of thing. <laughs> you know, you must catch him and everything. And Yeah, I, I think this is my favourite part of that meta-narrative, of, you know, starting with the publisher and going back to him every now and then. And obviously he rejects the book. And, and but... I love that the daughters, like, have picked up the manuscript. He's got this terrible yeah. relationship with his wife which <laughs> is so incredibly funny where it's like I always ask after your mother and he's like I don't understand why you do that <laughs> yeah and then, and then his three daughters run in are just like you're publishing this right like I want to find out more mm. and like that is so heartwarming to me that like of course the male publication industry is not going to understand what this means to, to yeah. various women in the world like a novel about having sisters and being a girl like, mm. of course, a man in the 1800s is not going to understand what the fuck that. Yeah, means. like it's almost shocking to see her buy the f- the story at the beginning that she that she get. You know, you're trained to think like a woman in a publishing office get out of here kind of thing. It's like you know he will buy it, but like it's still like massively weighted against her and like you know the contract negotiations and stuff like. Seems like I'd want to own the copyright to my book, doesn't it? And stuff like that. Um, yeah, I mean, I like obviously, and I think this is when you get into the. This is the first book she's written that's in her style because previously yes. she's been writing these very masculine edged stories about yeah. like people murdering and stuff like that. And this yeah. is which again, is what Frederick is saying is like it's not that you're bad; it's like what you have written a bad thing that doesn't suit your voice. Like this feels inauthentic. Like you're doing an impression of someone else. Kind of it's just he's incredibly bad at saying it. Ah, wow, he's French. Um. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then in like the final meta touch of this, like when she's sitting down negotiating the contract and gets told she has to have the movie end or the, the story end with with Joe marrying this man. Oh when, God! When we when we cut to her running through 
the rain to propose to him or like to 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 win him back or whatever mm. like the lighting has changed and now it's all it's it horrible. it feels like it's intentionally badly acted as well like it's supposed yes. to be over the top and a cheesy little like rom-com ending and it's her it, it's her as an author mocking the expectation of the publisher and like all right you want this here it is it's fucking trash fuck you <laughs> like, like and we haven't touched on Desplat's score to this but like the score is wonderful mm. and it's so fucking heightened in this in this last scene <laughs> uh and it really does feel like the kind of thing that you'd get from like a, a rom-com spoof about like five years earlier than this yeah but yeah it's it's utterly wonderful and then obviously the movie transitions into intercutting between joe having transformed aunt march's house into a school for little boys and girls mm-hmm which is the the actual ending to Little Women, yeah. and her watching Little Women be published for the first time in this gorgeous like red and gold hardbacked <laughs> case, which they did a, a run of the book, and it's the copy that I've got on my shelf. Mm. It's it's just a wonderful scene of like watching this this book get created whilst staying true to the actual ending of of Little Women. Yeah, and like notably, there is not a man on her arm while that's being printed, kind of thing. And... Yeah ostensibly in real in real life you know in in the in the meta narrative that's frederick just went and she just let him go kind of thing and that was the end of it it is very romantic seeing like the old-fashioned printing like we have these kinds of machines around the hallways of where i work and yeah like it is like a completely different world obviously compared to now and seeing all the plates getting loaded up and yeah it's great i'm like so in the books yeah it's just just a lovely lovely little ending yeah of his little women <laughs> of his little women yeah. yeah like again really good love it i don't know like just i i can understand where people are like yeah it's very good whereas i'm sat there going like this is something that floors me emotionally every yes. time that i see it and i think that's what the important distinction here is for me going like i think this is a masterpiece because it elicits this feeling from me and this isn't to say that like all things that elicit feelings from you aren't being manipulative or like aren't getting a negative reaction, but this one is just like something it touches inside of me. Mm. I love it. <laughs> yeah, I, I liked it even more than I thought I would, and I was excited to see it. So, yeah. <laughs> cool, and th- there we go. That is the last edition of Ben's Book Corner. I know, I'm sorry. Well, maybe you can... Well, you probably won't be able to bring it back that much for Volume 3. But yeah. Yeah, so that is our Pearl episode, which means, inevitably, as we reach the end of this, we have to touch on probably, like, the most bolt of lightning movie of the 2020s. Yeah, weirdly. (laughs) Yeah, Parasite next week. Out of fucking nowhere. Hmm. Potentially the most acclaimed movie of the last ten years. Yeah, so the, the only the only Oscar winner that we're covering. So undeniable, it's the first foreign language movie to ever win Best Picture. Yes, that's staggering that that's true, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, but yeah, that's next week. I'm excited to let Matt see that for the first time. I'm yeah. hoping it's a handmade like, a, like appreciation of it. I like his other work, so I think we're in good hands. <laughs> Unless it's just a complete left turn from what the other kind of stuff he does. Right, Matthew. Yes. For the penultimate time, will there be movies? I can't say what will happen, but hopefully our podcast will end up either married or dead by the end of it. (laughs) Goodbye, everyone. Bye.